Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 211 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I have finally been to France. Hey! Have you not been to Paris before or have you not been to France before? Were you in a tank? Were you trying to take over? <laughs> I must have changed at Victoria. Yeah, I, uh, I have never been to Paris or France before, but now I have been to Paris, France. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. Paris, New York, Harwich. We're like a sweater shop jumper. <laughs> yeah. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I can't keep up with all the watering. It's too much, mate. I'm with you on this one. Indoors and outdoors. Yeah, indoor plants, outdoor plants garden plants cats myself and then a phone call to the mother just to check that she's not dehydrated we are in a heat wave she is drinking lots of water yeah it's too much it is a lot it's a lot my mom doesn't drink water ever would you like me to add her to the list of the other (laughs) yeah could you yeah one of our friends told us they bought a soda stream specifically so her husband would hydrate because that was the only way she could make him drink water was if he made it a bit fun Fair. Fair enough. It'd make me drink water. Mm. Do they still make the noise? They're like... I, I don't have one. Uh, I'd like one, but I don't Well, have ask one. her, please. Yeah. Okay, I'll report could. back. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Buy it off her when she gets bored of it. Okay. I'm Jen Offord, and on Saturday I made a whole damn dress. Well done. Whole damn dress. Woo. Is it yeah. heat wave appropriate? It is, yeah. It's a sun dress. Is it for you or is it for Lyra? It's for me. I did a one-day dressmaking course. Because I'd like to learn how to make stuff to make her clothes, but I thought, no, I'm going to make something for me. So I made a sundress, an adult human-sized sundress, <laughs> I think is probably the point you're getting at. Was it human-sized or small? It was big. Didn't your mum used to make your clothes? Yeah, mostly out of old curtains. Thanks, mum. Have you got a sewing machine? Yes, my right. mum does. I yeah. thought you were going to say, yes, it's my mum. <laughs> Can I also ask approximately how much it costs you? A fucking shit ton. It's like when you make a cheesecake. That's always my thing with making stuff yourself, yeah. Oh, I've made a quiche, it costs £30. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember Lorraine Pascal? She's like a former model turned TV chef. Mm -hmm. No. Yes. Well, she did a cookery series on the BBC in, I would say, sort of like maybe about 2010 kind of era. And we watched it once, me and my then flatmates, John and Tom. And she did this thing where she like she got like a Swiss roll and she cut it into slices and she lined a bowl with slices of Swiss roll. And then she got like five tubs of haagen and put them in the bowl. And then she was like, and then you just freeze it. And I was like, A, that pudding costs £35 to make. Yeah. And it's essentially Arctic <laughs> roll. Exactly, exactly. Oh, I love an Arctic roll. I don't know if I'm going to be able to concentrate on the rest of the podcast now. I'm just distracted by the thought of how delicious an Arctic roll would be right now. as well, to be fair. I'll send you the recipe, Mick. Thanks, thanks. I'll say that. I don't know if anyone's noticed, but it is quite hot. Yeah, melty, melty hot. There we go. That's our Britishness out of the way. (laughs) Later on, I chat Queens of Crime, the golden age of detective fiction, and why Richard Curtis can do one yes. with journalist and host of the excellent She Done It podcast, Caroline Crampton. I talk to showstoppers Ruth Bratt about what to watch if you're planning a trip to the West End this summer with your kids, your old people, whoever. In Jenny Off the Blocks, the Euros are upon us, and in Rated or Dated, woo! 
it's the MIB. Oh, here come the MIBs. Sorry, we watched 1997's Men in Black. <laughs> but first, the king is dead. Long live thee. Oh, shit, he's still clinging on. Hit him with a stick or something. Why won't he die? <laughs> it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we bemoan a really boring the week that was in British politics. Tedium, eh? And they're off. Into the lead goes a bin, quickly followed by another bin. (laughs) And there were lots of bins all moving very fast in this race to the bottom. And by that, I mean a fight to be Tory leader. Yep, as Hannah hinted at before the sting, Boris Johnson finally, finally resigned as Prime Minister. Sort of. I mean, he's currently still Prime Minister, which was part of the deal in him agreeing to resign as Prime Minister. Everything on Johnson's terms, always and forever, IDST. But he is going, albeit eventually, finally, finally brought down by a sexual wrongdoing. Although, surprisingly, not one of his own. Couldn't put money on it. (laughs) That time he gave his American foot buddy loads of taxpayers cash. But look at his silly hair. Forgetting that you've appointed an alleged sex pest as deputy chief whip. Yeah, slowly jog on, mate. And I mean actually jog on, as opposed to just getting out of a car and running to the doors. Video footage, which was an almost perfect analogy for the amount of energy he's put into running the country. <laughs> Seriously, in as much as I think US politics is batshittery run wild, people must look at us, look at British politics and think we are insane. I know we're famously eccentric, but in Johnson we have a leader brought down by a culmination of wallpaper, Tupperware, lying to the Queen mm. and somebody else's appalling behaviour. Oh yeah. It took a lot before the rats started deserting the sinking shit. And no, that's not a typo. (laughs) And to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if Johnson tossed his hat into the race just for yucks. But currently, as we record, there are 11 of the Conservative Party's best lols in the running. But given more keep joining on a seemingly hourly basis, it could be higher come Wednesday. Those 11 are Rishi Sunak, Suella Braverman, Liz Truss, Penny Mordaunt, Jeremy Hunt, Grant Shapps. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Shut my head. Great for a podcast. Tom Tugendhat, Sashi Javid, Nadim Zahawi, Kemi Badenoch and Rayman Chishti, who's been a minister for five minutes. Apparently Pretty Patel and Reese Mogg are thinking about it. But Ben Wallace has dropped out, which oddly means he remains my favourite Tory. Although admittedly <laughs> that bar is so low, it's just lay on the floor. Oh, and obviously I considered doing a joke list that included dead people, cartoon characters and members of my family, but that's all been done elsewhere. One positive thing I will say about the Tory leadership race, it's too hot, the sun's infected her brain, (laughs) check her oxygen levels, is it is a thumbs up for diversity in a way that puts the last Labour leadership contest to shame. Agreed. There are six people of colour, two of them women, and another two women in with a shot at running the country until the next general election, which surely cannot come soon enough. (laughs) And while I realise that all wearing suits cut from the same true blue Tory cloth, a swimsuit in Penny Mordaunt's case, but more on that later, I still think that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, slim pickings and all that when talking about what's left of the Tory party, I know. Still, for a couple of days last week in real-time British politics, what a time to be alive! Oh my God, it was magnificent. Wasn't it? Yeah, it was really, really, really fun and frustrating and just a sort of Greek drama played like a carry-on film. (laughs) It was superb. Yeah, I find the whole thing to be 
quite... I mean, obviously it's brilliant, but then we have to have somebody else. One of these jellyfish is going to lead the country for a bit. I, yeah. I mean, to be honest, and this is totally honest, and people may throw this at me for the rest of my life, but the ideal person to be running the country at the moment for me... Is it you, Hannah? (laughs) It's someone who is efficient. Uh It's someone who is going to get the job done and just get it done. We need someone who can just turn up every fucking day and just do stuff and not be mired in scandal but equally not appeal to anyone who may have voted Tory last time. So what, you, what I want is for Labour to win the next election. So I need someone who's good, but not mm-hmm. that good. All right then, Hannah, you're a gambling woman. Who is your money on? Who my money's on and who I think would be good are two different things. Because <laughs> actually, to be honest, who I actually think would be perfect for that would either be Theresa May or Michael Gove, because they at least have proved they can do a job and nobody would ever vote for them to be the leader. But neither of them are interested in taking it. The favourite, which is Penny Morden, never wins in Tory mm-hmm. elections, so we can throw that past her. But even so, Ben Wallace, the other favourite, is now not standing. I put my money on Tom Tugendhat because he is the least swivel-eyed loon of all of them, I would say. He's not covered in the, the stink of Boris Johnson at all. In fact, he's just been a thorn in Johnson's side. And also, we're in a, a lot of trouble domestically, but the world's a bit at the minute. Sri Lanka's in chaos. Haiti's in chaos. There's just been a political assassination in Japan, and that's not like without us talking about a war in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So I think someone who has some interest in foreign affairs and some good record on foreign affairs, so basically not Liz Truss, who's just going to LARP Thatcher and start a war somewhere just because she fancies it. So I have put my money on Tugendhat. I, I mean, he's a Remainer, so he is an, a long shot. I did see in an interview in The Telegraph, someone had asked him what's the naughtiest thing he's ever done, and he did say invade a country. And I was like... Yeah, he's probably <laughs> killed people, isn't he? Because he was in the army. <laughs> actually, my top choice would have been Tobias Elwood, because I think he actually seems to be quite a nice human being, albeit every couch, everything I'm saying in the fact that these are all Tories, and I am clearly not a Tory fan. And that's the thing, I think, that we've seen with the shit that people are given for pointing out how diverse this leadership contest is in comparison to the Labour leadership contest. It's like, oh, well, they're all Tories, though. They're all dicks, and therefore, you know, it doesn't count. And it's like, but it does still count. People become, Mm. like, people join a political party for so many different reasons. It's not always knee-jerk. It's it's not always for horrible reasons. It's not always racism, or they hate the poor, or they hate the working class. I mean, some of it absolutely is for some of them. Mm. But it's much, much more complex. And if we can see that on the left, we've got to be able to see it on the right as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think Kemi Badenoch's actually in with a reasonable Mm. chance. And if we are going to have a black female prime minister, the victory of that should not be diminished by the fact that she's not from a party that you like. I fully agree. I worked for a newspaper once where our editor got sacked. He had to leave the building immediately and then they employed somebody else and he came and wandered around and said hello. But he was tied into a, a contract that he couldn't leave for six months. So for six months, we ran a newspaper without an editor and it's never run as smoothly. I'm going to be totally <laughs> honest. It's never run. It never. I'd never worked anywhere that ran as well as that did because people stepped up and did the best that they could Mm -hmm. and weren't micromanaged within an inch of their life and everything went really well. There was a day that I was the most senior person in the office and it was fine. 
So I do wonder whether perhaps an empty suit with a, a, a mop, with a, a note on that says Prime Minister. You do know do he well is staying until they elect. Oh, wait, no. no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One last question, though, Hannah. Is it too late to choose chaos under Ed yeah. Miliband? It looks more and more delightful by the day, doesn't it? I watched Question Time for the first time in about five years on Thursday. And one of their guests was a guy who used to play the banjo in Mumford and Sons. <laughs> I mean, I don't think politics is serious anymore, <laughs> is all I'm going to say. There we have it. Would you like some good news, Mick? I feel like some of that is good news, but yeah, let's yeah. have some more good news. Well, it's very long and a bit complicated, and it's happening not before time. But bear with me, it is good news. So, as many people listening will know, I have a permanent bee in my bonnet about the quality and indeed morality of the vast majority of true crime podcasts. There is, however, an exception to every rule. So let's meet Hedley Thomas, investigative journalist for The Australian and that rarest of people in the world of true crime, someone who gets results. If you listen to his 2018 podcast, The Teacher's Pet, and almost 30 million people did, you'll probably already know that former rugby league star and teacher Chris Dawson is right now on trial in Australia for the murder of his wife, Lynette, who disappeared without trace in 1982. What credit can we give Thomas's deep dive into the case for making this trial happen? Well, According to the defence, almost all That's of quite it. quite a lot of credit. <laughs> <laughs> and while it's important to say that Dawson has yet to be found guilty of anything, regardless of how this trial ends, it will surely provide some sense of closure mm. for Lynn's family and friends who've been waiting for answers for 40 years. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. Get on with it. I'm here to talk about another of Thomas's podcasts, Shandy's Story, released last year, which investigates the murder of 23-year-old Shandy Blackburn, stabbed to death yards from her Queensland home in 2013. Shandy's ex-boyfriend, John Peros, was found not guilty of her murder in 2017. But, and here's the rub... A later coronial inquest ruled Peros was, in all likelihood, Shandy's killer. How could the two decisions be so different? Well, there's no physical evidence linking Peros to the crime. Thus, it seems very reasonable to ask, how can someone stab Shandy more than 20 times and leave no DNA at the scene? Mm. And how can they then get into their car and carry no trace of their victim with them? And given these questions and the fact that for Peros to be tried again, compelling new evidence would have to be uncovered, Thomas asked independent forensic biologist Dr Kirsty Wright to take a look at the evidence. And what she uncovered beggars belief. Ooh. Now, what I'm going to try to do is compress a lot of technical information into as few words as possible. So if you're interested in this, definitely do more reading or listen to Shandy's story. What Wright uncovered was a forensic train wreck, that's her words, at the Queensland Health Laboratory. For example, it had failed to find DNA in a swab taken from a fresh pool of blood at the scene of Shandy's murder. It had also failed to find any DNA in Peros's car at all, including his own. Hmm. A car that it is generally agreed hadn't been cleaned in years, if ever. 
Thomas and Wright, along with Shandy's family, immediately began pushing for answers. And if you listen to the interview I did with the spy cop survivors a few weeks ago, you'll remember something Alison said, that when an institution feels attacked, its immediate reaction is Mm self-preservation. And that is clearly true the world over, because Thomas and Wright have experienced pushback, including attacks on Wright's professional integrity. However, last month, Queensland's premier, Anastasia Palazak, finally announced a royal commission into concerns about the state's forensic lab. It will also look at police practices involving DNA evidence. So this is great news for the family and friends of Shandy Blackburn, of course. And I should probably point out that none of this makes John Peros guilty. Yep. But this goes way deeper than that. Thomas and Wright were quick to spot two things. Number one... If your test produces a result that makes a layperson say, really? (laughs) And no one within your organisation questions it, then this likely isn't a one-off error. Uh It's likely systemic. It's currently impossible to say how many cases may be caught up in the growing scandal. But for reference, police have already started reviewing evidence in about 50 sexual assault cases. Which brings us to the second thing Thomas and Wright immediately spotted. DNA is especially valuable in a certain sort of crime. Violent crimes, up close and personal crimes, sexual crimes, crimes where women are the victims. Yep. And since a woman's decision whether to even report this type of crime to the police is often based on her degree of confidence it will produce any result, by failing victims of crime, you are failing all women. Mm-hmm. So let's keep an eye on the inquiry and see what happens. But in the meanwhile, all credit and respect to Thomas and Wright for getting this over the line. Before I finish, and I know I've been talking for ages, I want to stress one more thing. We are not talking about things that happened in the past. We are talking about failures that might still be happening as we speak. Also last month, the Australian reported that almost 600 crime scene samples were not tested by the lab due to being judged to have insufficient DNA for further processing. Police asked for 47 of these samples to be tested anyway and 31 returned usable DNA profiles. That is figures for 2021. That's last year. When the inquiry was announced, Thomas said, Vicky, who is Shandy's mum, said to me that her hope is that Shandy didn't die in vain, that this inquiry could be Shandy's legacy. The outcomes and the remedies, the fixes, the learnings, the lessons. Let's all hope so. Absolutely. Wowzers, what a story. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that the times of the week where we undermine and patronise women in the running to be leader of the political party currently in power. Obviously, there are loads of subtle ways you can do this in a piece about the candidates hoping to become Tory leader. But if you can't be fucked with subtlety, then using a photo of her in a swimsuit while everyone else is fully clothed gets the job done pronto. So, the woman in question, Penny Mordaunt, MP for Portsmouth North, is potentially best known to the public for going on the ITV diving show Splash, meaning she is no stranger to being in a swimming cosy in public. But, crucially, on that programme, all the other contenders were also in their (laughs) swimming duds. 
In Friday's Times, a piece titled Runners and Riders in Race to Become Next Leader showed Nadim Sahawi in his suit, Jeremy Hunt in his suit and a bike helmet, Rishi Sunak in his shirt sleeves playing rugby, Ben Wallace in a military puffer jacket, Liz Truss in smart trousers doing a silly wave, etc, etc. <laughs> and Penny Morden in her blue swimming costume. I've no doubt the Times has a vested interest in who they would like to see as the next Prime Minister, as the next Tory leader. And certainly they've chosen photos that make some candidates appear more capable than others, even with their clothes on. But given women are already underrepresented and disadvantaged in politics, partly because of how women are objectified and demeaned in society, as we've recently witnessed in the Commons, thanks to accusations that Angela Rayner uses her feminine wiles, aka legs, to distract <laughs> Boris Johnson, and that sleazy-as-foot wink Rob gave her while patronising her for being working class. It feels a pointedly sexist trick to pull. All in suits, or all in swimming attire. One or the other. Yeah, like Miss World. Yeah, Have rounds, if that's what you're going to have. Yeah. Totally. Who doesn't want to see Rishi Sunak and his budgie smugglers? Oh, his budgie smugglers talking oh. about world pace. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I am joined by the wonderful Ruth Bratt, star of Showstoppers, which makes her our de facto musicals expert. <laughs> Hello. How, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very hot. We are here to talk about if people are planning a trip to the West End in the summer, either they're taking the kids or they've got their parents to stay and they're looking for something to do with them. Some suggestions of what to see. But I wanted to start with something that they can't see. What went wrong with Cinderella, Ruth? Do you know? Oh, I'll be really honest about how I feel about it. Right? Fair enough. I, I misunderstood one of the lyrics in it, and I thought she was singing, I'm a fat Cinderella. <laughs> 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 You're all right, Lord Webber. It's not apparently it's bad Cinderella. It's not my cup of tea. I'm going to come straight out and say it. It's like a combination of things, like the cost of putting it on, the cost of tickets and how expensive they are in the West End and we're still like nothing compared to Broadway oh yes I've been to Broadway very recently yeah and it's wild it's eye-watering it really is that's because they pay their employees better but (laughs) (laughs) but I don't know what went wrong with it I mean I do think the way they were treated was shameful you know the fact that they got a new cast and then they found out that they weren't going into the job on Twitter like, come on, guys. There was also a very poorly worded letter read out in front of the existing cast, which I thought, Ooh, yeah. I mean, and there's this whole thing, my industry, my glorious, glorious industry at the moment, about making everything kinder. I come from a time where it's just, everyone was horrid, so <laughs> you just get on with the job and you don't, and you go, oh, well, if I haven't got the job, they just won't contact me. But if I have, they will, yeah. you know, and you just got very used to having this kind of real hard shell about it all. And now it's all about trying to be kinder and giving feedback and, you know, that kind of stuff. There's this whole thing about when you audition for something, them telling you that you haven't got it rather than only telling the people who have got it. I was like, this is great, but you need to do that before the press release. Yeah. <laughs> I was up for a job at a, a big theatre and I only found out I didn't get it when they tweeted the press release about the cast and then a day later I got a thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> we're not, we're not you haven't already noticed we didn't <laughs> want like, 
I think you need to liaise. Casting and PR need to liaise a little bit here. So there's a lot of stuff going on about, you know, and I think actors of my generation are used to being treated like crap. (laughs) (laughs) I often get asked, what should I go and see? Because I go to the theatre a lot and I have a default recommendation which is Come From Away. Oh, my goodness. Which is closing on the 7th of January, 2023. So I'm going to have to come up with a new default recommendation. Oh, that's the saddest news. But it was you that first told me to go and watch that, Ruth, because you'd seen it in America. I've taken my nephew to see it. I've taken my mum to see it. And I think that's the perfect example of how broad a field it appeals to. So, yeah, we went and saw it. And then I took my mum to go and see it. My mum was down visiting. I went with the showstoppers because we all go and see these things because, you know, we have to as much as possible. And it's just beautiful. It's heart on a stage. Mm. Isn't it? When you think about the subject matter which is september the 11th is worth pointing out to people it's just the most uplifting heartwarming and we went and saw it and it's the first time i've been in a theater where an audience has been especially an an english or or british audience Mm. has been literally hovering waiting for the last note so they can get up and give a standing ovation standing ovations in the states are like what are they give them every yeah but this was like literally people are waiting for it to finish so you can be up because you want to be up in your mm. seat. want to be. I mean, the music's really kind of pumping and all that anyway. Yeah. And it's hilariously funny. It's so funny. You know, you were saying you took your mum, you took your yeah. nephew and that's kind of the thing. So this was the thing that did it for me. I took my mum because she was down and she went home and told my dad, who was not a man who loved musicals particularly, you know, he came to Showstopper a lot, but he wouldn't, <laughs> he wouldn't go and see musicals. And she was like, we have to go. We have to go and see it, Christopher. <laughs> they came down specifically to see it, I think. Brilliant. Uh, he loved it. He loved it. One of those things that does appeal to people, even who d- would not go and see a musical. Yeah, normally. yeah, agreed. Yeah. Agreed. And it's really kind of lo-fi, isn't it? You know, like there's no massive set. I mean, talking about not lo-fi, when I was in New York, I saw Music Man. Oh, oh my God, Ruth. I can't believe how just extraordinary the sets were. There's really? like one song on a train and they build a train. And there's one point where there's a stagecoach and a horse arrives and that's they have a stagecoach and not a real horse, but it's a full-size horse of what it is on stage for one song. It's. I mean, that's why tickets cost that much because it's, yeah, it was incredible. So yes, very... Come from away, very lo-fi in the comparison. Opposite of that, yeah. yeah, I mean, because I think on Broadway, they, like it's expected now. I went to see years ago. We went to see Ragtime, and that's one of these things where they sing about a car. Like he wants a car. That's his dream. This nineteen twenties car comes on, and it's just yeah, <laughs> like but like a full car. Yeah. Where you're like, how are they fitting all this shit in the wings? Yeah, what are you? Why do you, you don't even need that? I can imagine that car. Like he's imagining a car. <laughs> oh, I'm so jealous you got to see Music Man. You Jackman's like my, like... Uh, uh. Oh, he was brilliant. But I would say to anyone, and if it comes here, which it might, whether or not it has Hugh Jackman in it is irrelevant. He was great, but I think as a production... Oh, that's good. It was brilliant, which brings me to something that I wanted to ask you because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to come up with some new recommendations. Nah. I was having a look at some things that were... In this year's Batch of Olivier winners, obviously the big winner... The Life of Pi, which is great. It's not musical, but yet somehow it manages to feel like one. I don't know how. It's it's really great. 
That's the one. That's one of the ones I want to see. Yeah, it's it's terrific. And if anyone doesn't really know London and you want to go to a theatre that is really easy to find, come out of Leicester Square Tube Station and Wyndham's Theatre is right next to it. So job oh, done. It's, it's a peach, isn't it? Yeah, I love the Wyndham. Uh, but cabaret is what I wanted to get onto because mm. it started with Jessie Buckley in it. And much as I, I feel that she probably is one of the most talented actresses of a generation. That seems to me like something you go to see for the production as much as you go for the star that's in it. So tell me what you make of Cabaret and whether you think it's worth the investment for people. There's another one that I've not seen yet because I've been touring, so I've not seen finally back on tour. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I know a lot of people who've gone and I know people who've plumped for the the Cabaret seating at the front and for people who've gone for the... Because they have basically rebuilt the Kit Kat Club inside the Playhouse. From what I gather... So I know people who've seen both casts, people who saw the um, Jesse Buckley, Eddie Redmayne one, and then people who've seen Farsi. And it seems to me, from what I've heard, that it's made absolutely no difference. I mean, I think they're probably very different performances, mm. but it doesn't that doesn't impact on the on the show. And from what I gather, it's absolutely phenomenal. Although. My mate who went and saw it was like, there is a bit where they're singing, you know, the money, 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 money. Mm. And, and like, they're doing it quite ironically. And he's like, I mean, yeah, that's fine. But then there are people sitting at the front who've paid £400. <laughs> you can't be ironic about <laughs> what like. We looked at tickets for it and we were on a standard issue outing and we couldn't find them more than anything else. And we ended up no. going to see The Life of Pi, which was great. And we all really liked it. Cabaret is one of the ones that I would love to see, but it's getting tickets is like gold dust now, I think. And also it's just at the cost of it. I just sort of went break. Yeah. Know? But I think if you go up into the gods, like it's not so bad. It's going to be a bit hot up there the next couple of weeks. But yeah. The next couple of weeks. Just, you know, go, go in August. When it's... <laughs> go when it's raining again when the it's summer's raining. over. Okay, something else that did quite well, got a lot of nominations, only one win, which was best original score, is Get Up, Stand Up, which is a Bob Marley jukebox-style musical. They're not my favourite sort of musicals, I have to say, the jukebox ones. And I read Mm. some reviews that said everyone was up in the aisles, and it might as well have just said there was loads of white people dancing. (laughs) It felt kind of cringe the way they said it. I wonder, have you seen it? Have you heard good stuff about it? Again, I've not seen it. And this is terrible that I haven't seen it, because we, uh, Showstopper, are in the same theatre. So we do Mondays when Get Up, Stand Up are not on right so i've seen all the pictures and i've seen the set and it looks i mean it looks incredible and it seems like it's a very happy you know when you walk into a theater you can tell whether it's a happy theater or Mm. not the lyrics are very happy theater at the moment i'm like you like jukebox musicals i'm kind of like and again like you i am like it's gonna be just be white folk dancing isn't it isn't it i mean i don't know what the demographic of the audience is but i'm I'm going to make an educated guess. Yeah. <laughs> given given what it's normally like. I've heard good stuff about it, and it seems like it's a right old giggle, you know. And the the guy playing um, Bob Marley is supposed to be phenomenal. Mm. Um, well, you kind of so, have to be at that yeah, point, you, don't you? you? I mean, you've got to be pretty charismatic to yeah. be Bob. I reckon it's one of those ones where if you go in with the right attitude, you'll probably love it. 
I felt like that was pointed at me. No, no, no. Because <laughs> I, I, I would definitely go in with the wrong attitude. I think it was pointed at me. I'm like the grumpiest fucker in the world. Yeah. Like, uh, everything. Yeah. Um, it's not in uh, here. It's just middle class people dancing. That is the makeup of the West End audience. Yes, it really is. But, you know, so like we went to see Jersey Boys when it was on because our mate Duncan, who's MD in Showstopper, sometimes depths in Jersey Boys. And I know it's not the greatest musical in the world, but we had the best night. I, I do <laughs> actually. Do you know what? Of all of them, that's the one that I would probably go to the most because I do love Frankie Valli. And they're also not pretending. I don't know whether Get Up Stand Up is the same. They don't hang a story off the songs. Mm. They just go, here's our story. And this is the song that we wrote at this point. Yeah. (laughs) So it's not like in Mamma Mia where... Oh, that stuff makes me cringe, yeah. Where she's suddenly like, Chikitika, tell me what's wrong. (laughs) 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 You haven't called it out at all yet. Why have you suddenly called it out? Just get into that song. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, let's talk about six. When I was in Mm. New York, six was everywhere and according to the people behind me in the queue for cheap tickets those tickets are like gold dust over there it had a funny start here didn't it because it had a start and then we went into the pandemic so it feels new even though it's it's not strictly new there was a standard issue outing to see six but unfortunately i wasn't very well so i didn't get to go tell me what did i miss out on well i did see six and here's what i think about it Uh, (laughs) it's like so many things in the world at the moment you know they sort of talk about what's feminist and it's and it's just because it's six women on a stage that doesn't make something feminist amen i have to say i got very cross during six because you watch an hour or because it's only like i mean here's the good thing about it it's like an hour and 10 minutes and then it's done there's no interval and it's straight through I'm happy with that that for me is like the perfect night at the theatre brilliant an hour and a half max great you know I don't need an interval for that that's brilliant so it's straight through energy is phenomenal and like you know uh, and I would not denigrate any of the women who are in the show I think they're all doing a brilliant job and I think it's great that so many women are getting that opportunity however (laughs) by the time you get an hour in an hour and 10 minutes in you've sat and watched six women bicker for an hour right and then one of them says hey maybe we shouldn't all be bickering and maybe that's what this show has been about all the time and i was like no no." (laughs) you can't have it both ways you can't play the women bickering thing and then tell me that i haven't been watching women bickering for an hour and 10 minutes because i have so i i have a problem with the framing of it the music's great the audience the audience loved it they were all on their feet and you know what if it's representation and there's little girls going to see shows that have women of color and some women of different sizes not many i have to say then that is a good thing the one thing i would say and i really wish they would address this is that wouldn't it be way more interesting if you cast the queens as the age they actually were oh yes because i would much rather see uh catherine played by a 40-year-old woman, 50-year-old woman. Yeah. she was. And if you look at Catherine Howard, it would actually remind you how young Catherine Howard was and how out of her depth she was. Yeah, absolutely. But it's all young women. And that, to me, is where it falls down. It's, uh, I mean, I've kind of got a bee in my bonnet about this at the moment anyway. Yeah, I'm glad I asked, Ruth. 
It's just about the representation of women past a certain age. They just disappear. So you're either like Princess Ingenue or you're a crone and there's nothing in the middle. You could really say something here. If you really want to do a feminist show, if you really want to do one, please do one for me. That would make me wildly happy. And I'd be way more interested in seeing that. Now, talking about the young feminists... Frozen has just opened at the Theatre Royal, runs till the 26th of March, although I get the feeling that will probably continue to run until the earth collapses in on itself like a dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Have you seen it? I've not seen the stage show. I love the cartoon. I mean, it's going to be popular, isn't it? It is going to be popular. and... And I'm guessing pricey? I think so. Although a lot of them do have, like, a lot of those Disney ones do have, like, some good deals on them. Although a lot of the half-price places have gone now. Yeah, well, we could talk about good deals because there there is, of course, a lot of stuff that Mm. has been on for Time Immemorial, Book of Mormon, Wicked, Jersey Boys, The Lion King, all of those things still on. Today Tix is an app which you can pick up. That's really good. cheap tickets on. People should give that a whirl. Yeah. I know that you have a tendency to go in and just barter directly with the person who's selling the ticket. <laughs> I've come for away tickets. I got for like 20 quid or something because when I went in and went, how, how much can I give you for these? <laughs> I don't know that I'd recommend that for everyone. Um, You've so, got to be really ballsy to do it. <laughs> also, if there's a queue of people doing that, it's just going to make your life harder, Ruth. So let's suggest that nobody does that. But yes, you could try to date it. There's loads of stuff on, and Juliet has been getting good reviews. Yeah, and that's been on for a while, so yeah, I reckon you could get... Heather's is back again until... Is it? Six... Oh, good. Until September the 4th. That's a goodie. In terms of plays, I know people like are like a famous name, don't they? So there are quite a few famous names. I saw last week The Madhouse at the Ambassadors, which oh, is with... David Harbour and Bill Pullman. Um, How was that? It was great. Really funny. Was it? Oh, First good. half is really, really funny. Second oh, half good. is less funny, but it's supposed to be less funny. So it's not like it just went off the rails. It just it became yeah. a bit more earnest at that point. That's on until the 4th of September at the Ambassadors. The Glass Menagerie is on at the Duke of York with Amy Adams. Apparently brilliant. Mickey and I are going on the 4th of Oh, August. are you? Yeah. Oh, my mate went and saw it. My mate Justin, who goes mm. in and barters with me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, went, he went to see it the other day and he was like, it was just, so much of it was just so great. I mean, how could it not be? It's Tennessee Williams. I know, right. And I also, know, it's yeah. Tennessee Williams in sweaty, weather. <laughs> We've finally I got know. the weather for a Tennessee Williams play. Oh, sarsaparilla. <laughs> <laughs> Amelia Clark is in The Seagull which is at the Harold Pinter until the 10th of September. I don't know a lot about Chekhov, so I'm going to leave that there. Chekhov, when it's done well, is brilliant. Chekhov, when it's done badly, is painful. I remember going to see... I'm talking a lot about my dad. He was very funny to go to the theatre with. When I was about 15, I think, we went went to see Three Sisters because my dad was, like, trying to, you know give me a cultural education. And we were sitting there and they were chatting away, you know, as they do at Chekhov. Mm. And I could feel him like shifting in his chair and he was like, oh, I don't know. And then he just, sort of about this volume, just went, oh, just go back to bloody Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> my, my dad, who I also went to the theatre a lot with, who was also called Christopher, yeah. he once got removed from an Amjam thing that we've been to see because an old man was singing and his teeth fell out and my dad laughed for half an hour and was eventually removed because he was causing his disturbance. It was amazing. Got to keep on track here. Obviously, going back to going to the theatre this summer, not everybody is going to be able to afford a trip into London. Yes. I mean, obviously, there are places for cheap tickets, like we said. Today ticks, get it on the app, download it. But there is touring, something that a few years ago was a big winner at the Olivier's, which is Girl from the North Country. Which my lovely friend Joshua is in. Is he? Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. So I saw that in the West End and it's Conor McPherson, isn't it? And it's um, mm. the music is all Bob Dylan and some of the some of the arrangements are tremendous and beautiful. Set in the American South, isn't it? Yeah, and, and Bob Dylan's a really, like, you know, everyone makes fun of him for the... <laughs> but actually, he writes beautiful melodies and he's a poet. He really is. No, I agree with you. Oh, actually, so did the Nobel Committee, didn't they? It's a really interesting story. Quite a lot of bleakness in it because it is, you know, the American South in the, I guess, the 30s, Mm. 20s, 30s. But it's sort of like a boarding house and they're all at the boarding house and, and it's just kind of all the people who live in the boarding house and all their various stories are told. And I'm guessing because Dylan himself like drew a lot of stuff from people like Woody Guthrie, who was writing mm. in the thirties. That it sort of feels like it fits. It doesn't feel it does incongruous. Feel like it fits, and they do kind of again, like they are singing as the characters when they sing the songs. And some of them, you're like, why is this character singing this song? So nobody says because I was wondering the other day how many roads <laughs> must a man walk down. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness! Uh, No, like it's really, it's way more subtle than that. And and when you sort of think about it, you're like, oh, I see why that character sang that song. Mm. Like you know. So yes, I would highly recommend it. If for nothing else, just to go and see the fabulous Joshua Jackson, who is um, one of my favourite people. He's such a charming human being. And he's got a beautiful voice. Well, so. I am going to see him. I am going, I have tickets to go and see it in Milton Keynes. Oh, um, hooray! Which is in, I think, in about November, because it's on tour. It's for a year. The whole, yeah, a whole year. And yeah. it's, I think it starts, I think it's probably in Dublin as we speak. It is, yeah. So they opened, I think, last week. And they've mm. got, like, five weeks in Dublin, I yeah. think, because that's where Connor's from. So they've got, like, five weeks in Dublin. And then it goes on a tour. And it's all around the UK. I'd re- I'd really recommend that if you're, you know, not not London-based. Yeah, or not able to get into London. Yeah. Brilliant. Is there anything else that you'd just like to... Actually, I tell you what, Ruth, you mm. know what people should go and see? What's that? Six. <laughs> but I've decided to say instead. <laughs> you are on, as you just said, at the... Oh, I haven't written down what theatre that is. Lyric. At the Lyric. Lyric on Shaftesbury Avenue, yeah. Not the Lyric Hammersmith, the Lyric on Shaftesbury Avenue. So one Monday a month. Um, so we've got our last one pre-Edinburgh. We're back up in Edinburgh for the whole festival in August, which is the first time we've been back for two years. Yeah, 2019. Taking a mortgage out, have you? <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it's insane. Like, we were chatting about it the other day, like, just trying to get accommodation this year has been 
like just Im- impossible. Mm. I mean, it's more than per person. It has more than doubled. That's insane. More than doubled. That since is insane. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, so our, obviously our overheads are way bigger than they were. Um, so we're really hoping that a lot of people come to the festival. Yeah. Ruth, this has been brilliant. Thank you ever so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Caroline Crampton, writer and host of the excellent fortnightly She Done It podcast, unravelling the mysteries behind classic detective fiction. Caroline, hello. Hello, thanks very much for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. Let's tell the listeners about She Done It. As you said, it's a fortnightly podcast about classic detective fiction, which means Agatha Christie and all of the other contemporary writers of detective fiction that were popular at the time when she started writing 1920s and 1930s the interwar period gets called the golden age of detective fiction Mm -hmm. so that's where I'm mostly focusing although I do look at people who write in that style since and what those writers went on to do afterwards etc etc that's what I do really and I do it mostly in a kind of essay format Mm. where I go out and talk to experts and then I write a a sort of essay that they fit into really so hopefully it's a nice smooth easy listen that has quite a lot of editing work that goes into it can confirm it is a nice smooth easy listen your passion for it really comes across why do you love it I think I love it for its this is going to sound really contradictory but for its repetitiveness and its infinite variety at the same time Mm -hmm. it has all these rules and conventions so you can know exactly where you are at any given moment when you're in a sort of classic whodunit of that style But within that, writers experimented and tried out so many different things that you can read a hundred of those books and really not feel like you've read the same story twice. So I enjoy the the comfort and security of sort of knowing what I'm going to get, but then also being surprised at the same time. Do you think detective fiction is the most loved genre? That's a really interesting question. I think amongst the people who are fans of it, they are true fans, Mm -hmm. diehard fans, and yeah, I talk to people all the time who really don't read anything else, that they're completely content to just read crime fiction in all its lovely variety. But if you think about it from the perspective of what society and even academia has considered mm. and prized, then it's not always been top of the list. Lots of the writers that I look at in the 20s and 30s were grappling with the question of, so there are novels and then there are detective novels. What you do is not really quite up there, say, with literary fiction. And I think that's definitely a belief that's persisted, even though there has been quite a a change in this in universities recently. It's quite possible to study detective fiction and academics are free to devote their careers to writing and publishing about it. But that's such a recent development. So I think it depends who you ask and where you're standing as to how well-loved the genre feels. What a diplomatic answer. Uh, I studied English literature uh, when, when apparently that was OK to study. Clearly there's, there's debate now as to whether it's a worthy subject. I'd say yes. Mm. And I did a module in detective fiction, but it fell within a course I was doing about women's literature. And the golden age of detective fiction was a real boon for women writers, wasn't it? It really was. You will have heard people talk about queens of crime, mm. principally Agatha Christie, but also writers like Dorothy L. Sayers, Marjorie Allingham get referred to with that name. 
you don't really hear about kings of crime. I've only ever heard people use that phrase almost in a kind of campaigning way as to say, oh, you know, there were men writing them too. Oh, well, no one think of the men, Caroline. <laughs> I know, to be honest, refreshing. It's the one area. <laughs> Honestly, the one area of sort of cultural output I've ever encountered where it's just uncontroversial that the women dominate. And that can be quite nice to spend time in, to be honest, when you you know hang out in the rest of the world all the time. So yes, <laughs> women, overwhelmingly the best-selling writers, the ones who have survived, the ones who've stayed in print, by far the majority of them are women. And that ties into what you were just touching on there about the sort of snobbery in regards to detective fiction, doesn't it? Yes, I've asked lots of different people over the course of doing the podcast, why is it that women writers are just so dominant in this particular field and no one really knows definitively but one of the more interesting theories I've had put to me is actually because of what we were just saying detective fiction not being seen as this high quality highbrow literary output therefore the gatekeeping was a bit less intense Mm. and it was therefore fine for a woman to be at the sort of pinnacle of the genre nobody objected nobody cared in the way that say around the same time Virginia Woolf was really struggling to drop the lady from in front of lady novelist in her career no one really ever gave that much thought in the sphere of detective fiction because it just wasn't that serious and it also obviously of its time and as with any genre the detective fiction of the 1920s and 30s is a great record of that period which was a time of immense social change that was particularly huge for women's independence and opportunities or as one gorgeous quote on she done it has it the great war opened the stable door and we women bolted oh i love that The notion of surplus women, which is something that came after the Great War, is the core of She Done It's very first episode, and indeed its title. Please can you tell me why, when talking about detective fiction, you decided to start there? I was just fascinated by this idea of surplus women, had been for ages. Just too many of us. It was like a kind of scare panic. Mm. I looked a lot at newspapers of the time. And even going back, uh, there was another peak of it about 20 years earlier, around the time of the Boer War. And the idea was that these conflicts were killing off men in far greater numbers than had happened previously. The demographics of the sort of white English-speaking world were getting unbalanced. And therefore, there were all of these eligible women who would otherwise have found husbands and had children who were just surplus to requirements because there weren't enough men to go around and become their husbands. Mm-hmm. It's obviously a hugely conservative and reductive, and I believe fairly now debunked by historians' idea that it was actually the wars that were causing this problem and all of this. But it was a very persistent belief at the time, and pretty much any woman who chose not to get married and follow that very particular template for life was in danger of being labelled as surplus. You get some interesting detective fiction that plays with this. There's a, a Dorothy L. Sayers novel, Unnatural Death, in which the main character, Lord Peter Whimsey, has established a detective agency pretty much made up of surplus women because he says it's just such a crying shame that their talents are overlooked by society you know they can go places gather information where no man would ever be allowed 
and just no one is making good of this brilliant resource so i'm i'm gonna do it i've set up the infrastructure and off they go i love that book and really wanted to explore all the history behind it really and so yeah that's why i started there well, I mean, you've led really nicely onto a question I wanted to ask you, and this will delight our Hannah, my colleague, because I'd like to talk spinsters. Miss Marple's status as a spinster makes her ideal for solving crime. Ditto, Dorothy L. Sayers, Miss Clemson, who is one of the, the cohort that you've just mentioned, whose spinster status you describe on one of your podcasts as her superpower. Why are spinsters such good detectives? And why, I guess you've covered this a little bit just then, but it is a powerful statement of the time to have them be protagonists and leading ladies in there. It is. I think even the word spinster just carries so many overtones of overlooked and disregarded and on the shelf and never the protagonist, never the main character. Mm -hmm. That's why they work so well as actual protagonists in detective fiction because if you think about the way Miss Marple solves mysteries it's mostly by sitting unnoticed in drawing rooms knitting while people talk around her (laughs) and having spent a long time as an inconspicuous resident of a village in which as she is always saying you know all human life is here I've seen everything I know people think that nothing ever happens in a village but I've seen I've seen all the terrible things that people can do to each other in microcosm and therefore I have the experience to map that on to bigger more dramatic events so yeah she's perfectly placed to observe and to reason and to apply her her knowledge then when you put the spinster in the forefront of the story they have all of those qualities that have been disregarded and ignored and that's just really satisfying to read I think Hannah and I have a little plan that when standard issue is is done and we're we're little old ladies, we will go round solving crime. I th- I think I've heard so many women say that it's just a kind of backup <laughs> plan. It's just it's just a really fun idea, isn't it? And I think part of the reason it is fun is because it's unexpected. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. It again leads into the fact that many of the books from the golden age of detective fiction have these protagonists that are women leading full and satisfying lives, despite that backlash against women of the time. And even though they'd never have called themselves this, they are quite gloriously feminist, aren't they? It's definitely a time when the word feminist is being sort of tested and developed and so on. One of my favourite writers from the time, Dorothy L. Sayers, was very much involved in in that discussion. And she wrote this really brilliant essay titled, Are Women Human? Question mark. <laughs> I mean, it's a question still being debated today, Caroline. Well, quite. And that's sort of what she's pointing at in the essay. She's saying, it's been getting on for 100 years now. Why am I still having to answer this question, really? And she's sort of echoing what Mary Wollstonecraft was saying so long before that, uh, you know, all we want is to be seen as equal, etc. And so all of, although none of that really feminist ideology developing is coming into the detective fiction, it's happening at the same time and in some cases being done by the same people. So it's hard not to see the read across between the two. And I think if you're interested in, if you're interested in feminism and how it came to be the way it is, I think the detective fiction is a it's a it was a really nice sandbox for people who were escaping from those heavier debates but obviously never really free of the ideas that they contained and i guess as well even though and this is something that still happens today even though the authors of these books were women 
men read detective fiction whereas it's still really unusual for men to pick up books written by women richard curtis just did an article in the guardian going oh my god i've discovered women writers are oh fuck off curtis you've written about women for so long you maybe you should have read some women as well but i guess men were picking up these detective novels right I have to say, I saw that Richard Curtis article as well. I received it in a number of texts from friends and including from my husband, just with the subject title, this is going to make you angry. Yes, yes, it is. In the golden age classic era, but even today, that women are very much present and you could argue dominant in contemporary crime fiction. For some reason, it is just the one area where men find it okay to read a Ruth Ware or a Lucy Foley or a Sophie Hanna in the way that I just don't think they would ever think that they could be a reader of Sally Rooney because it's women's literary fiction as opposed to men's literary fiction. I really don't know why that is but my guess is that just that there's this long tradition going back over a hundred years now of the best crime fiction is written by women and if you're a fan of the genre you want to read the best right Mm -hmm. it is just a topic that really really irks me though and every time I encounter a male colleague or acquaintance and it's revealed to me over again like just how few books by men they read and how this doesn't sorry do you mean few books by women they read sorry a few books by women absolutely and how this doesn't even really strike them they don't notice. Mm-hmm. It just infuriates me all over again. It always makes me think of uh, when I first started out my career as a journalist in the late sort of 2008-9, uh, there was a study published at the time about parity in Parliament, I think. And it wasn't just Britain, it was study of legislators all around the world. I think it's when there are 30% of representatives are women, men perceive it as 50%. Yeah. So I think when it comes to crime fiction, I don't know what the stats are like for today's crime fiction, but it was definitely the case in the Golden Age that a huge number of the books published were by women. And I think almost more importantly, the ones that stayed in print and were reissued and that were available to people in the 40s, 50s, 60s, etc. Those ones were definitely majority by women. But yet somehow it escaped this reputation as being women's literature. It didn't get pigeonholed and pushed to the side in the way that, say, romance novels have, or to some extent, some elements of more literary fiction have. And I wish I knew why, and I wish I knew how we could replicate this effect, but unfortunately not. Well, keep us updated if you if you get the secret, if you work out that particular <laughs> puzzle. I think if anyone can solve this puzzle, it will be you, because you've got all this background in <laughs> detective fiction. Because I love that there is then that sort of stealth feminism, in inverted commas, because it was so new back then. Because the lives of those female authors themselves, particularly two of the big ones you've mentioned, Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, were reflective of the shifting sands of the times too, weren't they? They definitely were. Dorothy L. Sayers was one of the... She was among the first cohort of women to receive a degree from Oxford University. She'd actually, in 1925, she'd actually completed her degree, I think, nearly 10 years before, but it wasn't until then that women were actually awarded... Mm the qualification and allowed to graduate but she was there for the first ever ceremony and her sort of identity as a a woman student was very important to her a lot of her friends were friends that she made at college and they stayed with her the rest of her life Agatha Christie is a little bit more difficult in the sense that I think 
she would probably have seen herself as quite conservative. She would probably, if asked the question, are you a feminist, have said no. Mm -hmm. She just wasn't intellectually in touch with that tradition at all. She didn't go to university. I mean, she barely went to school, to be honest. She was homeschooled. And then I think she did a year of finishing school in Paris because she was very much being educated for marriage and Mm -hmm. sort of debutante life almost. But then she turned out to be one of the biggest earning women writers or even writers full stop ever. She's been dead for 50 years and her literary estate probably still makes more per year than most working, living writers. That's amazing. Which is astonishing. There's a bit in her autobiography that I think is very indicative of this, that her first really big financial success, a one-off financial success, came with a book called uh, The Man in the Brown Suit, which is nothing particularly special in terms of a mystery. It's actually one of her less good ones. It was maybe her third or fourth book to be published. She'd gathered enough of a reputation by this point and a newspaper paid her, I think, the equivalent of about £20,000 today, one off, just in one go, to serialise it. And with this money, the first really serious lump sum she'd earned as a writer, she bought a car. At a time when most people who were not fabulously wealthy did not have personal cars in the sense that... I think she says none of her friends had a car yet at this point. And she absolutely loved this car for the independence it Uh gave her, the power to just go anywhere and do anything without having to ask anyone or wait. And I think given that she understood that, how with the money that she'd earned, she'd given herself this freedom and this independence, I think probably if she lived today, she would understand what we mean by feminism. Oh, what a wonderful answer. Christie is indisputably the queen of crime. Is there a neglected female writer you think people should know about? There's a couple I would mention, and brilliantly, they're becoming less neglected all the time, so their books are actually quite easy to get hold of now in a way that they weren't even five years ago. One is ECR Lorac, which is a slightly odd pen name that she made up. Her name was Edith Caroline Rivet, E-C-R. And then Lorac is Carol backwards. Carol was the name she went by. She wrote dozens of mysteries about a Scotland Yard inspector called Philip MacDonald, who is a very quiet and unassuming, calm, nice man. He doesn't have any of the tortured or eccentric qualities, perhaps, of other detectives. But he's just really solid and dependable. And the stories that she invented for him, they take him all over the country... There's some in London, there's some set in Denton, there's some set in the North. Uh, some of them are set during World War Two, And just every scenario is so fully realised. I love reading them for what they tell you about the, the sort of social context of the time. I've learnt loads about what it was like to live in London during the Second World War from her books. You know, no matter how many times you're made to do the Second World War at school, you never really seem to cover what it was like to actually be there and live it. Uh-huh, and yeah. yeah, I've got that from her books, so I'd really recommend those. The other is Anthony Gilbert, who, despite the name, is actually a woman named Lucy Mallison. She was writing at pretty much the same time as these other people, and she very much made a living by her pen. She mostly wrote as Anthony Gilbert. You'll find some of her books under the name Anne Meredith as well. But what's really, I think, interesting about her is that she reacted very hard against the stereotype of the whodunit detective as posh and upper class. And she very deliberately made her detective 
sort of coarse and working class and abrasive and difficult. Arthur Crook, his name is. And every story sort of turns on people underestimating him, finding him difficult and he doesn't fit into these different scenarios. But surprise, surprise, he's very clever and he always gets there in the end. Arthur Crook, what a name. What a name for a detective as well. (laughs) (laughs) So listeners, I've got to be really candid and put my hand up here. When Caroline and I were going back and forth trying to sort out a date, I said, is there anything you think I should ask? So this question to Caroline is in fact Caroline's. On paper, reading about murder and violence shouldn't be soothing, but it is. You know, we still watch a lot of true crime today. Sherwood's on the telly at the moment. That's getting a lot of traction. (laughs) Why is crime fiction such a popular comfort reading choice for people, both back in the 1920s and 30s and now? I think there's two main strands to this. One is the feeling of safety you get from perceiving danger elsewhere. (laughs) It's that same feeling of, you know, in a torrential downpour or a storm, how nice it is to be all cosy inside. Yes. So I think there's definitely something of that, you know, you feel cosy and safe because you're reading about dangerous things and then you can close the book or turn the the program off and you're fine. So I definitely think that's one part of it. But I think the other part of it comes from this idea that we can test out scenarios and test out feelings safely through fiction. That if you were to live through a situation such as the one that you're reading about in the book, it would be chaotic and horrible and you would be right in the middle of it and you wouldn't get that kind of bird's eye view Mm -hmm. of what's happening. But reading about it, having been nicely plotted out for you by a clever writer, you know that the writer's got you in the end, that they're all going to they're going to tie it all up in a nice, neat bow at the end. And therefore, you're free to experience those feelings of chaos in a way that would just be horrific to do firsthand. So I think there's something very soothing about that as well, that you get to put yourself in the hands of a writer and trust that they know the plan and you don't and therefore you are free to to feel the difficult things that they're putting you through. Great question, great answer. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Caroline, where can people find out more about She Done It and what else you're up to, please? So the podcast's website is shedoneitshow.com and there are links out from there to all the different podcast apps where you might want to listen to it and some bits you can try out and some more information. So yeah, that's the best place to find it, really. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week when we wonder why the fuck we're talking about Sir Alan Sugar as we discuss all things women's sport. First up, let's talk about Wimbledon for a minute and congratulations to Yelena Rybakina, who became the first ever Kazakhstani finalist and indeed champion last week when she beat third seed Ons Jabur. I mean, if you ask John McEnroe, she's actually Russian. She was born in Moscow and her parents still live there, he said. And she switched nationality in order to gain funding. A bit like former British number one Canadian Greg Rosetsky, I suppose. But whatever. I didn't want to make a prediction in advance because we all know what happens when I do that. But I didn't think that Sviantec would win this one. I didn't necessarily think that she wouldn't get to the final, but I didn't think that she would win this. I couldn't have predicted this final, though. Congratulations to both of them. 
Let's also talk about the men's final for a minute, which many people on Twitter were comparing to the Tory leadership contest, where you don't actually want any of the contenders to win. Novak Djokovic did win, however, in the end, beating Australian Nick Kyrgios. I used to quite like Kyrgios, he seemed to have quite a good sense of humour, but it was called out for being a bully during this year's tournament by Stefanos Tsitsipas after he lost to Kyrgios in the third round. Just sour grapes, said Kyrgios. But the final was an absolute shit show, with Kyrgios kicking off at the umpire about a woman who he said was heckling him. He said, she looks as if she's had about 700 drinks. I can't really put my finger on why, but I found his tone uncomfortable, shall we say. And more so the abuse that he then went on to give the umpire. We are led to believe that footballers are the worst people in the world. But in football, you'd get sent off for behaviour like that. I don't like to see it. I don't like to see it in football. I don't like to see it in tennis. I don't like to see it anywhere. The umpire looks basically powerless in the face of it. And I don't think you can have that in a situation where someone, the ref or the umpire, is supposed to have authority over the game. I think the ATP and the WTA need to have a look at this and come down much harder on players who are mouthing off in this way and apply the rules equally because we all know what happened when Serena Williams got a bit lippy with the umpire in the 2018 US Open final. And speaking of sexism, let's segue seamlessly to the women's Euros. I've been doing a bit of live blogging for Eurosport during the tournament, so I've watched quite a lot of it, and I feel like I'm in a good position to judge this, in case anyone heard resident talk sport rent-a-douche Simon Jordan mouthing off this week. There's a lot of mouthing off this week, isn't there? I'm definitely in a better position to judge than Jordan, it seems, who by his own admission does not actually watch any women's football matches. Jordan says the quality of the matches is, and I quote, poor, which is why he doesn't like to watch. Simon, if you don't watch it, how do you know? Maybe you should ask Norway how poor the quality is after they lost 8-0 to the Lionesses last night as I record this on Tuesday. And Norway are not shit, by the way. Let's look at the Lionesses for a minute. Their opening fixture against Austria was disappointing, I can't lie. They did not look to be playing freely. There was no ruthlessness, no real quality in the final third. But they put those nerves, because that's what I'm going to attribute the performance to, they put them to bed clearly for this record-breaking win against Norway. Georgia Stanway, Lauren Hemp, Ellen White, Beth Mead and Alessia Russo all scored with White bagging a brace and a hat-trick for Mead. Incredible scenes and I am so jealous of anyone who managed to get tickets for that match. Pretty dull eh Simon? Unfortunately our friends in Northern Ireland are out of the tournament already after two defeats in the group stage. They play England on Friday. Now in the interest of making this about football not just about England I caught the Germany match on Saturday and it was stunning. Prior to last night I failed to see who might be able to dismantle them. Watch this space, or better still, watch the telly and, indeed, the matches. Or don't, if you're Alan Sugar, who's fed up with seeing so many women on the TV, apparently. Alan Sugar actually committed to the internet forever last night, because that is what happens when you tweet, lest we forget, that he was pleased to see the BBC had gone and enlisted veteran pundit Ian Wright for commentary on the England match in response to his earlier tweet about his disappointment at the absence of men from their commentary teams covering the Women's Euro. I mean... There's basically zero men working in football, right? There's no, there's none. Zero men except Ian Wright, who's been advertised as a pundit for this tournament for weeks. 
Wright's response was, as you would expect, brilliant. And I echo him now when I say, you need some hugs, man. That's all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, put up your arms and all your flippers and tell us what we watched this week. (laughs) This week we watched 1997's Ha Ha, Ha Ha, Men in Black, starring, of course, rising star of the time, just risen star of the time, Willard Carroll Smith II, or if you prefer, Will Smith. It directly follows his turns in Bad Boys and Independence Day, but predates the 20 post-2001 years of Oscar bait and, indeed, 1999's Wild Wild West. I don't think he gets enough shit for making Wild Wild West, if I'm honest, and I'm just here to say it is really, really shit. Anyway, it's also... Wow, wow. Sorry. It's also directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who brought us the original Men in Black franchise and exec produced the 2019 reboot, starring standard issue tea maker extraordinaire Chris Hemsworth. And if you're confused by that, (laughs) I suggest you listen back to our discussion around The Witches of Eastwick. But also for legal reasons, I should just say Chris Hemsworth has never made any of us a cup of tea, as far as I'm aware. Lazy bastard. (laughs) <laughs> do any of you want to own up to anything now he's, he's asked me not to tell you to because he is very busy <laughs> well he wears a penny for me <sighs> he doesn't wear a penny for me absolutely <laughs> gypped me off chris hemsworth <laughs> the film also stars tommy lee jones who i want to say straight off the bat is brilliant in this i think he's brilliant in everything jen but he's oh, oh anyway we'll come to this as well as rip torn linda fiorentina and shout out to carol striken who unbelievably is making his third rated or dated appearance here do you know who i mean no. Uh, which, who's he in it? He's one of the aliens, the important aliens who gets killed, the really, really tall man who is also in uh, oh, yeah. The Witches of Eastwick and indeed yeah. The Adams Family. Indeed, also Barry Sonnefeld. That one, yeah. Um, <laughs> also Bazza, director Baz. Baz. Our friend Bazza. Also Vincent D'Onofrio. Who's he? Sorry, I don't know. He's Edgar a.k.a. The Bug, but also an excellent big bad in Daredevil. Yes. No, well, I mean, that's, uh, no. no, sorry. <laughs> so, this film is based on a comic, The Men, The Men in Black, rather, which was created and written by Lowell Cunningham and illustrated by Sandy Carruthers, who I imagine are really quite rich now. The comic book was originally published by Air Cell Comics, who were brought out by Marvel in 1994, two years after the series, as in The Men in Black, was optioned. And this was all brand new information for me, by the way. Did you know it was a comic book? Yes. No, I barely knew it was a film, Jen, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know how this... What? I don't know how Men in Black passed you by, Hannah. They literally had a, a number one hit and everything. I really don't understand <laughs> that, but we'll get on to that. And so to the plot, the film follows the exploits of a group of shady government agents known as the Men in Black. But yo, they ain't on no government list. They straight don't exist, no names and no fingerprints. They walk in shadows, move in silence and guard against extraterrestrial violence. That was very good. Was that the song lyrics? Yeah. Yeah. 
that is to say, aliens walk among us and they keep them in check and carry out some sort Isn't of this diplomatic... David Icke's theory, really? <laughs> uh, there's more TV in David Icke's theory. But anyway, they carry out some sort of diplomatic function between the different planets as well, which is all a bit confusing, all while keeping it on the download so the public never even know. Indeed, with the quickness, talk with the witnesses, hypnotizer, neuralizer, vivid memories turn to fantasies, ain't no MIBs, can I please? <laughs> And that is to say, if anyone should clock any of those under-the-radar activities going on, along come the government agents to zap you with a light on a stick and erase your memory of events. Are you still with me, listeners? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Great. That makes perfectly cromulent sense. So, Agent K, Tommy Lee Jones and Agent D, Richard Hamilton, are on the case picking up actual aliens on the Mexican border – but D has had enough and is ready to go put his old trotters up, leaving K with the unenviable task of finding someone willing to forego their entire existence and get covered in quite a lot of alien jizz to join him. <laughs> jizz is very specific. I, think I use it in the broader sense. Goo. <laughs> in the broader sense, not the specific. As most people do, Jen. Yeah. Enter cocky young FBI agent James Darrell Edwards, who is apparently quite astute and gets headhunted to come into MIB HQ and try out. He's more fun than the rest of the joyless, soulless marines and whatnot who have a crack at being selected for the prestigious position and apparently reasonably happy to have his fingerprints burnt off. He becomes Agent J and hilarity ensues. But... Unbeknownst to them, a bug, in inverted commas, but also like actually a bug, type alien, a giant cockroach, has crash-landed in the state of New York and stolen the skin of some right old bell-end angry farmer type. And he's come to wreak havoc on Earth and whip up some sort of intergalactic warfare by obtaining a galaxy hidden on a cat's collar. I was trying to think of a joke about your cat's old collar, Hannah, which was magnetic and just like had lighters and shit stuck to it but it's not old it's it's new she still brings me things on a daily really basis. yeah she still wear it i thought you had to take it off after she brought like 20 pairs of scissors in or something on a neck. yeah it was a knife it was a massive yeah. carving oh my God, knife there was a carving it? knife there was yeah. a, a key to my next door neighbor's garage there was a badge that's oh no that wasn't the, it was the balloon that said i am five the balloon she coughed up Oh, yeah. She'd had the best time at that party. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this bug, he kills two alien bigwigs in pursuit of the galaxy that's hidden on the cat's necklace. And their human bodies are sent to coroner Laurel Weaver, who quickly identifies them as not actual humans and gets drawn into the whole debacle when said cat decides to hang out with her after the death of his human slash non-human owner. Will the Bugman alien find the galaxy? Will the world be destroyed? Will Jay get his leg over? Only some of the answers to these questions are surprising. As I've alluded to up the top, the film did quite well, making (laughs) $589.4 million from a budget of $90 million. In fact, it made $51.1 million in its opening weekend alone, making it the third highest opening weekend ever at the time after Batman Forever and The Lost World Jurassic Park. 
Note that both of those films are sequels. The film was generally well received and praised by critics for its special effects and dry humour. Yeah. There are a few moments which went over my head a little bit on the first viewing when I was when I was younger, such as the busload of Mexicans at the beginning of the film, which I'm sure we'll go on to discuss. And it's also a firm favourite with audiences scoring 92% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The film was also nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Art Direction, Best Makeup and Best Original Musical or Comedy Score. I'm going to do it again. Ha ha! Ha ha! Winning the award for Best Makeup. Now, I'm presuming, or I had presumed before we started this, that you'd both seen this film before. Hannah, apparently you had not. No, I had not Which is unbelievable. So I'm going to start with a slightly tangential question here. But based on my mum's disbelief slash horror at how many words to the accompanying song I remembered, what's your favourite Will Smith tune? And by Will Smith, I mean Will Smith, not under the moniker of the Fresh Prince. Oh, I'm not right. sure I have one. If I'm going to no, be no, I don't think honest. I've got one. If you, I'm, I'm not a fan of Will Smith. Unbelievable. No, neither am I. But just in case you're wondering, mine was getting jiggy with it. It's my favourite of that era. <laughs> na, 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 na. Exactly. So, Hannah. This is the first watch for you. Mm. I'm looking at your face. <laughs> How did you feel about it, Hannah? Yeah, I thought it was shit. Really? Really? Wow. The effects look terrible now, obviously. They probably look better. No, I don't time. think, I think oh, so. I totally disagree. Totally disagree. I they look really just chunky and crap, I think. Because it's obviously being made with the idea of being a franchise in mind it effectively operates as an origin story and it takes way too long for the plot to get going. There's way too long of of Will Smith being introduced to it. I mean, I know the point is because, you know, it's going to become a franchise, but I'm never going to watch another one. So a lot of that was just wasted time for me. I love Tommy Lee Jones, but it is nowhere near the sort of thing I like watching Tommy Lee Jones in. I really can't, have never been able to particularly warm to Will Smith. So... Yeah, it did next to nothing for me apart from have Riptorn in it. He is always fun. I just thought it was daft. It didn't make me laugh. It didn't make me oh. anxious. I spotted the minute they said Orion's belt. I was like, yeah, that's the cat. It's going to be on his collar. There was no drama for me. Yeah, I really, I didn't like it. Sorry. I don't think it's particularly well hidden. No. I wouldn't be like, you know, wow. That, I mean, Because you are really good at spotting twists and stuff, Hannah. But that one to me is, it's really well signposted. It didn't ruin the enjoyment for me, even knowing where it was. Do you know what I mean? Nope. Like watching it a second time, because I think I have only watched it once before, which would have been around the time that it came out. But you sort of answered like two of my questions there. So Tommy Lee Jones, I think he's great in this. I really enjoyed him in this. Mickey, what did you think? I have seen it a lot and I saw it at the cinema and I've seen it quite a few times since and I love it, which is probably not a surprise to any listeners because it it's is bang up like... to me that you love it. Oh, it's just a big, silly movie and I really like a big, silly movie. I think Tommy Lee Jones is so good because we're so used to him playing quite a straight character and I think he's very, very funny in it. He also has some cracking lines. The line where Will Smith says, why don't we tell people? People are smart. And he goes, a person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals and you know it. I'm just like, that's still spot on. That is still a spot on observation. And the way he delivers stuff is he knows he's in a silly movie, but he's he's having a good time, mm. but not in a John Travolta in face-off way. What, what I would say about him is, 
you know, when I was younger, I always thought he was old. You know, and I always thought he looked a bit like a cowboy's bull sack. But actually, he looks quite young in, it, in this. I was surprised by how young he does look in this. Because I never remember him looking that young. And yeah, I was in my 20s when this was made. Yeah, he does look like a cowboy's bull sack. If, like, someone made a film and that was a character, you'd be like, well, that's exactly who plays that. Yeah, totally. Put a hat on him, he's done. <laughs> but no, I, I just really like it because it's silly. It does really make me laugh. I still think the special effects look amazing, but I'm a big fan of Rick Baker, who obviously did the makeup for American Werewolf in London, which is one of my all-time favourite films. I mean, it's very slight. The whole film is very slight, Mm. but I still think it manages to say something about immigration, Mm. which is quite interesting. And it's short and snappy, and yeah, I think all of the actors are great in it. They all seem to be having a nice time. And also Tommy Lee Jones wrestling a pug. Joy, just joy. That's exactly how I felt about Tommy Lee Jones, because you don't really associate him with sort of like comedy roles. There were a few points where I did laugh out loud, but I, I, it didn't have me like rolling in the aisles kind of thing. And it's nice to see him in a role like that. And he like he does it really well, I think. I think he's probably the best thing about the film. I think Will Smith is probably the the worst thing about the film. Is that... He's very showboated, isn't he? He's yeah. very showboating. Mm. I wondered if you thought that was fair or if I've come down a bit bit hard on old Willard there. He doesn't really do much for me as a rule. And there was nothing in this film that changed my mind particularly. I think Mickey is absolutely spot on. Slight, is it? Like I say, by the time it gets through about the first 45 minutes before the actual plot kicks in, really... It's all sort of preamble up till that point. That's my favourite bit. <laughs> the yeah, preamble. I like, I like the buddy buddy comedy and yeah. And the silly effects and meeting Rip Torn and just this idea that all of these people are aliens and yeah, I just think it's quite it, it amuses me. I wasn't thinking about it being a franchise at all. I was thinking about it as a standalone mm. film and I've yeah, I've never so. really because I've never watched any of the other films. I've only me watched neither. this one. So I only think of it as a standalone film. And I think it stands up as a standalone film and I think it I don't want to spaff my load too too early here but I, I think it stands up today I will say Mickey you are correct the the one bit that I found quite enjoyable and it's because I find it enjoyable when all popular culture does it is when it attempts to anchor its madness onto the real world like I absolutely love it in the leftovers when you'll just hear about someone who disappeared you know, and it's always like the Pope, Shania Twain, <laughs> Gary Boosie. Gary there's, there's always some really comical people in there. I was so disappointed he didn't come up on that screen, Hannah. Yeah, and that, that, it, that works here. Yes, I agree. There is something funny when it suggests to you that, like, there are certain people, you know, that are aliens. Elvis isn't dead. He just went home. I'd like to know, Jen, what you thought it said about immigration, whether you think it's a positive message or a negative message or mm. more complicated than that. I haven't really thought about that particular aspect of it i was when i was reading up about it today it said that they deliberately tried to make like the hq look like an airport i think it's modeled to look like jfk airport or something like like that yeah Yeah, it does which i think you definitely get the sense of when you watch it but i'd not really thought about what 
that actually meant it is it's kind of Hang interesting. Hang on, was there a woman there shouting, where's my goddamn luggage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're on the screen as one of the aliens. <laughs> They're quite compassionate, aren't they? If we take the busload of Mexicans coming in, Tommy Lee Jones as Kay is just like, yeah, you're all fine. The one he's bothered about is the illegal alien, the one who's dangerous, right? And also the aliens slash immigration yeah like, they're not all just like having to be perfectly behaved citizens you've got the one who's breaking the law because it's or res- restrictions because his family needs him to because his missus is about to have a baby mm. you've got some who are just like running news agents or like mm. slash selling guns and stuff they're not all bad they're not all good and it's in this blockbuster movie so i'd say it's quite compassionate but then men in black the men in black agency is mm. also about restrictions and keeping yeah. them in their place even though they're welcome in America, and apparently America's full of aliens, like intergalactic aliens, they want to know where everyone is and that they're doing as they're told, which isn't great. I, I mean, I, I would guess the people who wrote it probably were more on the compassionate side of things, but it ultimately has to appeal to the rest of America. And also, it's a plot device, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, that's the mm. whole point, is that they have to you know, make sure no one's up to any skullduggery. That's literally like their reason for being, isn't it? So, so yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about it. I think at the beginning though, when they've got the busload of Mexicans, you know, they make the, um, the sheriffs and whatnot look like the bigger assholes for sure Mm -hmm. for being heavy handed. and, and, And that is an interesting point to make. That's quite common in this sort of thing though. When you have somebody who works in an agency, in America, mm. they quite often, like, you know, are only focused, certainly in art, on their own thing. I mean, in Justified, he, oh he swings no, around all the it. time <laughs> saying, I don't care that you're growing weed, all I care about is finding this dude. And, yeah. you know, or in, there are things that, that Hank's not interested in in Breaking Bad that he should be, you think he should be, but he doesn't work for that arm of the government, so he doesn't give a fuck. So I think that's quite common, yeah. Mm. I did learn a fun fact, though, and I wonder if you both picked up on it, too, and that is coroners have to wear really short skirts mm, yeah. just across the board. <laughs> yeah. They have to dress. I, did, I didn't know this about no, coroners. Did you know it this? It is the law. No, it is the law. I, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, that brings us neatly on to the women. What I liked about the women was that she becomes his partner, not his... The woman. The the woman is that she becomes his partner rather than they don't set it up as a love interest, which I didn't remember the ending of it. And I did feel very much that it was on that trajectory. But I haven't seen any of the other films in the franchise, so I don't know what goes on later on. It's annoying that Will Smith's character also thinks it's on that trajectory, but yeah. she does get to put him down on that. But uh, I, I was obviously so surprised. And again, I, I can only imagine you were both really, really surprised too when the best of the best of the best are all men. <laughs> Every single one of them. It calls Mick. Honestly, I didn't even notice. So that's, yeah, so that says a lot about, well, everything really. Mm. Why are you here? Because we're the best of the best of the best, of course. And we have penises! We have penises, yeah. Well, I think I probably know the answer to this without really asking the question, but let's do it anyway. Let's go through the motions. Hannah, rated or dated? Dated. Mickey? Rated. As the deciding votes, I cast... Rated. I think it stands up. I think it's it's an enjoyable watch. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, in fact. Fair enough. Okay. Who's next? Tis me next... And we are watching a comedy, 
A dark comedy. An actual comedy. I don't know. Let's find out. <laughs> I thought that was a comedy, so I don't know. We might we might disagree again. Death Becomes Her from 1992. Is that the one where someone's head is like spun round on the poster? Yes. Right. Yes. Bruce Willis, Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. Yeah, I've never seen it. Standard issue for all women.